Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Well, the president actually did something you don't see very often. He he met people who asked him tough questions, and he you know was not surrounded by his adoring super fans, and he couldn't push back on the enemy of the people. But uh, look, I, I, I in my newsletter this morning, I I admit that I'm not a big fan of watching these town halls. I I, I do think that they are somewhat artificial, but I did think. That last night's town hall meeting on on ABC was kind of revealing. I mean, I, you know, a couple things. It 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 reminded us, I think, how genuinely bad Trump is at this sort of thing. How, how poorly that all that shtick plays when he's now surrounded, you know, by the cheering crowds. He had no teleprompter. He he couldn't use the media as a foil. So as a result, we got this stream of demonstrable BS. And before, before we get into today's podcast. I just I just want to play for you uh, Daniel Dale's uh, daily. Uh, Daniel Dale is the fact checker for CNN. He's really he's either got the best job or the worst job in the media because he has to fact check the president in, in real time. And very quickly after the president's performance, he had to go on air and just go through all of the misstatements, <laughs> the false statements the president of the United States had just made. This is Daniel Dale on CNN. There's just so much lying, Don. I'm going to go quickly here. So literally just stop me whenever you need to. He said, again, Democrats won't protect people with pre-existing conditions. That is nonsense. As a voter told him, Democrats created those protections. He insisted he didn't praise China on the virus. He did so repeatedly. We know that. He claimed that nobody knew at the time he was praising China that seniors were especially susceptible to the virus. That was one of the first things we learned out of China and out of Italy and out of the U.S. He claimed that uh, Biden said in March that the pandemic was, quote, totally over-exaggerated. I can find no evidence that Biden ever said that. He said that Winston Churchill was kind of like him playing down stuff because he went on rooftops in London during the Nazi bombing and told people everything's going to be good. Churchill did not speak from the rooftops and did not say everything's going to be good. He warned of suffering and danger. Trump said that he fired James Mattis. Mattis resigned. He said that protesters took over 20% of Seattle. It was a six-block area, nowhere close to 20%. He took credit again for sending in the National Guard in Minneapolis, uh, saying that this happened after a week and a half of violence there. It was not even close to a week and a half. It was days. And the Democratic governor is the one who activated the guard. He said he essentially repealed Obamacare by getting rid of the individual mandate. Not even close to true. The Medicaid expansion, pre-existing conditions, protections, other stuff remains. He said the cupboards were empty of ventilators. His administration admits he inherited about 16,000 from Obama. He did his usual false boast about so-called bans on travel from China and Europe. They were not complete bans. He said stocks are owned by, quote, everybody. Just about half of Americans own stocks. He repeated his nonsense about testing causing cases. Testing merely reveals and helps fight cases. He said that Biden has agreed to a Bernie Sanders style socialized health care. He fought Sanders on that issue. He has very much not agreed to a Sanders style plan. And Don, this is a preliminary list. I have hours of fact checking tonight to do because there is even more than this. So this was just a fire hose of lying again from the president. Do you need a drink of water? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm, I'm like spitting out <laughs> my camera. Here, was, so I, I apologize to the viewers. It was like just what, an hour, about an hour? Yeah, I, I feel like I need to take a drink of water and, and a deep breath after that. And this is, of course, is the is the problem that uh, whoever the moderator of the debate is going to have to do because he won't be able to keep up with all of that. So so how, how did it go last night? Uh, you You know that it went really badly for the president because over at Fox News, Laura Ingram, is referring to this as an ambush. And I want you to just put that in context. The president of the United States, who's an elected official, has to answer questions from people. 
uh, actual people who asked him some tough questions. But uh, you can tell from Laura Ingram that she did not think that this was a successful event for the president. President Trump finishing up a Pennsylvania town hall just moments ago. It was hosted by ABC News and former Clintonite George Stephanopoulos. But the DNC may as well have put the whole thing on. You should know that some of these people voted for you last time around. Some voted for Hillary Clinton. Why did you throw vulnerable people like me under the bus? Why don't you support a mandate for national mask wearing? And why don't you wear a mask more often? Why would you downplay a pandemic that is known to disproportionately harm low-income families and minority communities? And then there was this moment. Should pre-existing conditions which Obamacare brought into, uh, brought to fruition, be removed. No. Without, please stop and let me finish my question, sir. Should that be removed? I hope you are taken seriously. I hope you are. And we are not going to hurt anything having to do with pre-existing conditions. They will not do that Mr. because President, they have I socialized. Have, I have towards, to stop they you have so- You've been trying to strike down pre-existing conditions. I have it already, and it's a much better plan for you, and it's a much better plan. There's no plan. I'm sorry. And then, of course, he came up with the phrase uh, that what we need is a herd mentality. He meant herd immunity, but I, I kind of like herd mentality. So we are 47 days out from the election, and we are joined by Charlotte Alter, who is the national correspondent for Time magazine. Can you believe, Charlotte, by the way, it's only 47 days or? Does that seem like I, forever? I, it, it, it seems like at once tomorrow away and forever away. It's it's time is a flat circle. Who knows? <laughs> no, it, it, it does feel that way. And you you are in Flint, Michigan today, and you've been doing um, some interesting reporting, including in Wisconsin. And, and you know why I really wanted to talk with you, because I'm still haunted by your report out of my basically my neighborhood. You You came here. Uh, to Wisconsin after the Kenosha uh, disturbances, the, the riots, and, and you talked to you talked to a whole lot of people, didn't you? Yeah. So um, for that story that you're talking about, I yeah. talked to about 86 people. Okay. So the the thing that I think really spooked uh, folks who read your, your your piece was you came across, and again, I understand that I'm, I'm speaking as a Wisconsinite who has some familiarity with Southeastern Wisconsin. And, you know, before all of this happened, I would have described Wisconsinites as being, you know, pretty common sense people that we were kind of, you know, reasonable, well-informed, really engaged. But you had an interesting experience because you ran across more than a few people who have gone deep down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. So let, let's just talk about that experience. You're just talking to average people and they look like normal people. And then suddenly you're getting what? Yeah. So what was, I think, particularly uh, chilling to me about this experience as a reporter is that I was actually there for a different story. I was there to do a story about the mid, the, um, sorry, the suburbs and, uh, you know, Kenosha and whether Trump's message about law and order was going to resonate with suburban voters. You and I talked for that story. Um, And so, you know, I wasn't there looking for conspiracy theories. I was there to talk to people about what happened in Kenosha and their vote. Um, And what uh, surprised me was, you know, I would be going up to people in 
parking lots in front of the grocery store, in front of Target, on the street, in, you know, downtown Kenosha or downtown Racine, um, you know, in front of bakeries, in front, like, you know, walking down the street in Cedarburg, for example. Um, and just, you know, my strategy for this is just try to talk to, ev- you know, every single person that I physically see. And, you know, somebody doesn't want to talk to me, I they don't have to. <laughs> um, so, you know, And what was alarming is that, you know, I would start these conversations like, hey, you know, uh, just want to ask your thoughts about the election coming up. Are you planning to vote? Who are you planning to vote for? Tell me why. You know, that would be sort of the way each of these conversations would start. And uh, an alarming amount of the time, people, you know, maybe three or four minutes in would say something for lack of a better word, totally crazy, you know, totally insane, you know, like, you know, well, uh, you know, the cabal is pushing Joe Biden and I'm a believer in Q and, uh, you know, sometimes I would say, what do you think of the response to the coronavirus? And they say, oh, COVID is a hoax. You know, it's just like the flu. No one should be wearing a mask. Um, the ones that were more alarming to me were the ones where it was, uh, these QAnon people who firmly, deeply in their heart of hearts believe, factually believe that Democrats and Hollywood celebrities and the media are all conspiring in a, quote, cabal to traffic and rape children and drink their blood for a chemical that they believe is in their um. blood. <laughs> and... Uh, We're going to stop there for a moment. Yeah. It's, yeah. Okay. So two women in Ozaki County. Yes. Okay. So I live in Ozaki County. Yeah. Uh, Cedarburg, Wisconsin is about the most wholesome all-America city you can imagine. I mean, this is like Mayberry, USA. Mm-hmm. Two women, in reading from your piece, two women in Ozaki County calmly informed me that an evil cabal operates tunnels under the U.S., in order to rape and torture children and drink their blood. Yes. Okay. So somebody else explained to you the Democrats are planning to bring in UN troops for the election to prevent a Trump win? Yeah, that woman was in Kenosha. So you say it's hard to know exactly why people believe what they believe. Why do you, where does, where is this coming from, Charlotte? So, okay, so there was a lot about the origins of this that I couldn't really fit in the piece. So I'm glad that you're asking. So one of the things, you know, one of the reasons that experts believe this is happening now is that these kind of crazy town conspiracy theories fall, you know, they, they are taking root in an already fertile ground that has been softened by sort of the worldview of the right wing media of the past, like. 50 or 60 years, basically. So um, the history of this, and I'm actually curious what what you think of this, Mm -hmm. is that really since the 1950s or 1960s, there's been this narrative on the right, particularly among evangelical Christians, that, you know, the Democrats are godless heathens, that they control the media, and that they're spinning, you know, that that they're... the fake news narrative that I think anybody who's been alive for the last four years will understand what I mean. This idea that like, you know, the liberal media is lying to you or spinning the facts to, you know, deceive you. Right. And for the last, uh, you know, couple of decades, that's been, you know, there, 
that is a that is a worldview that many sane and rational people believe. They believe that there is a bias. You know, I I don't I'm not I'm not saying that 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 is a completely logical thing to think. You know, I don't think that the media is biased, but believing the media is biased is something that many people believe, right? Well, oh, I um, think that's yeah. There's a there's a there would be a consensus on the right. And and, yes. and and I'll be honest with you. I think that the the, the media over the years has given them re- reason to be somewhat skeptical. But but yes. yeah, I think, but something has has shifted. Has I mean right. something has right. yeah right. So it's so this is taking root in that existing worldview. So if you've already got decades of a worldview that says don't trust the media, don't trust what you read in the New York Times. It's the liberal media that's you know spinning and. This is the subtle distinction between a spin and a lie, right? So I think that a lot of people can't, don't understand that, you know, in the 1990s when people were talking about this, what they meant was, oh, they're spinning Clinton's tax bill or they're spinning the healthcare bill to seem like it's better than it is, not like they are totally fabricating things that aren't true. Right, (laughs) Um, right. And that's a distinction. That's an important distinction. Well, this is the way I've I've tried to explain what happened, and I'm still trying to, to to grasp, you know, how deep this this rabbit hole has gotten, or how how you go from being a you know normal rational person, if you ever were one, to believing some of this stuff. Uh, and 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 you're you're right. I mean, th- there has been this you know, media mainstream media skepticism, and this has been a theme in conservative media for a very very long time. But but at one time it was like, okay, you need to know the other side of the story and you need to understand right. that this might be. And then it be morphed into the alternative reality silos. And there was a moment, and I have talked about this before, in 2016 where I went, oh, shit, you know, we, we have been so successful at this that we have completely delegitimized the fact-based media. We have eliminated all the referees, all of the guidelines. Um, and And therefore, what's happened is the the right's immune system to crazy stuff has been destroyed. Yes. What? And I, so I, I, I said that back then, but I will admit that I didn't anticipate that the, shall we say the, the pathogens of disinformation and crazy would be quite as virulent as they turned out to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one, I, and, and I also think, you know, I think that that, that the, the, the worldview in the right wing media is one part of this, but I think a more important part of this is the algorithms on these yeah. platforms like Facebook or Twitter. Um, sorry, not yeah. Twitter, Facebook or YouTube. Twitter is let has a little bit less of a problem with this, but um, but uh, you know, I was describing it to my mom, and she was like, "I don't get it. I don't get how these algorithms work." And I think that the the way to think about it is like it's a water slide to hell. Like it just takes you along and along and along until you end up in hell. And, um, you know, one of the things we know about how these algorithms work is that these platforms want more eyeballs. They exist in order to keep your attention. So they continue to feed you more and more extreme versions of what the platform knows you're already looking for. So that's why you have these stories, you know, that's why there are people who go from, for example, watching Tucker Carlson videos to watching Alex Jones videos to QAnon. You know, um, the algorithm in some ways like shepherds those people along that um, along that path. And I think in earlier periods, you know, listen, conspiracy theories are nothing new. People believe right. that the JFK assassination was a hoax. People believe, or was an inside job. People believe that the moon landing was a hoax. But back then you had to kind of like 
find a little kooky tribe that believed this with you. You had to find special pamphlets and you right. had to read a book that was out of print or whatever. And it was all very uh, kind of niche and difficult to get this information that was not true. Now it's now these platforms are literally feeding you this information that isn't true and people are believing it. You know, I read your, my experience last week was reading your accounts and then watching this new movie, The Social Dilemma. Have you seen this? Because mm -hmm. it's, it, it is exactly what you just described. And you put the two together and you go, oh man, this is, you know, we're, we are really up against this. This is, this is dangerous. And, and however bad it is, it's going to get worse. It's going to spread. And I think that was one of the revelations of your, of your pieces how this has spread into, you know, close to like the mainstream or, you know, mm -hmm. ma Main Street America, uh, things that, that had been on the fringes. And it's interesting because Robert Costa from the Washington Post had the same experience you had. He was really shocked just to talk to random people in southeastern Wisconsin and they would find this. By the way, one of the scariest um, things that you encountered, and I want to ask you about this. Sure. Um Arthur and Frank explained they're not followers of QAnon. Frank says he spends most of her free. Frank says she spends most of her free time researching child sex trafficking. Big on Q. While mm -hmm. Arthur adds that he often finds this information on the Russia-owned search engine Yandex. Frank's eyes filled with tears as she describes what she's found. Children who are being raped and tortured so that the cabal can extract their blood and drink it. We talked about that. She says the Trump has seized the blood on the black market as part of his fight against the cabal. And then says this. I think if Biden wins, the world is over, basically, adds Arthur. I would honestly try to leave the country. And if that was not an option, I would probably take my children and sit in the garage and turn my car on and it would be over. Whoa. Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, um, yeah. my hair stood up on end yeah. when she said that. And Charlie, I, I have to say this, you know, for, for, for your listeners, I have a, a policy, uh, you know, Time Magazine, we have prof uh, professional fact checkers on staff who check all these facts. I also have a policy of personally as a journalist that when I talk to ordinary people who are not celebrities or elected officials or politicians, um, I like to call them back uh, if they're appearing in the print magazine, I like to call them back and go over, you know, make sure I'm spelling their name correctly, their age, and also go over their quote with them to make sure that they that that they feel like they're being accurately quoted. You know, I think that that's part of media literacy is people feeling like, okay, you're not going to just talk to a reporter and then surprise, it's out there. You know, especially for normal people. So. Um, these quote, I, I called her back and I read this quote back to her. I read all of these quotes back to her. And she said, yep, correct. So okay. totally cheerfully, you know? And, um, you know, so that was one of the things. I was kind of expecting her to say, oh, no, actually, I didn't mean that. I, you know, I, that was an exaggeration or whatever. And uh, she did not. She did not say that. Okay, let's just take a different frame on all of this because you spent so much time here, and I get asked this question all the time. But I, I think actually you've talked to more people lately than I've talked to in a long time. Uh, you had another piece that Kenosha is a test of Donald Trump's law and order message, and the headline reads: "It, it does not seem to be working." So as you as you know, I think as our listeners know, there was a time there where the Trump campaign went all in, um, certainly in Wisconsin, but also nationally. On this message, uh, he goes to Kenosha. 
Uh, I was getting text messages from Reince Priebus about how fantastic it was, how great it was. This was the biggest thing he'd ever seen. And yet, after your reporting and you're looking at the same poll numbers that everybody else is seeing, it's it's not working. Um, what? Why do you think it's not working? Well, you know, so I think that basically my the, the gist of what I experienced talking to voters in Wisconsin, and I understand that Wisconsin is an especially polarized state, yeah. is that I met almost nobody who was changing their mind right. based on what happened in Kenosha. The people who were buying what Trump was putting down were people who had already voted for him last time and seems like they'd been planning on voting for him for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, and the people who, um, you know, didn't, weren't swallowing the law and order message, they were Democrats or they were already Trump skeptical or they were already not planning on voting for him. I, I met exactly one person and he's the guy in the lead of the story uh, who said that it, that, you know, Trump's response to Kenosha was kind of making him waffle. And even by the end of our conversation, he was like, actually, no, I'm probably still voting for Biden. Like, you know, so yeah. it, it, I, I just think it, you know, one of the one of the sort of side effects of the uh, conspiracy piece is that is, you know, like the presence of these conspiracy theories in our electorate also kind of means the absence or it, it, it illustrates a vacuum where um, sort of news should be. Right. So it's kind of not really just about what these people believe. It's also about what they don't believe. And I think that, you know, there used to be this idea that, oh, the president says something. He's got a new message on this. And then like five days later, we see it in the polls. And, you know, it's like trick like that, that there would be this kind of. Again, I think of it like a water park that <laughs> like there that 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 there would be, you know, uh, this mechanism for getting information into people's minds that, you know, was was coming from the president or coming from the presidential candidate or coming from the government or coming from the CDC and that it would trickle into the electorate and people would believe it and consider it and evaluate it based on the facts. And I think that these conspiracy theories are like boils that are symptoms of a larger virus in our electorate. And I don't think the problem is that people believe in QAnon. I think the problem is that people don't believe anything they're hearing from official sources. And, and, th and that's the that's the larger virus? Yes, that's what I think it is. See, I, I, I think this is something that a lot of folks do not understand. I think this is a really important insight that you're, you're bringing here uh, because people think, well, you know, this will make a difference. Well, this will move the dial. Well, we'll have to see what happens from the convention. We'll see what happens from the debate as if we lived in the same media ecosystem that we did 20 years ago. No. And, and, yeah. and, and we don't. People are not following it in the same way. So a lot of these major stories that we think are major stories just don't play at all. I mean, did you can't I mean they that that, yeah. that no one knows these stories. So I mean, it's like, well, how is X story about you know this development playing in Kenosha? And often it's like well, they don't know about this. Now right. there, there does seem to be some indication that the stories about the thinking the sol uh, soldiers were and POWs were suckers and losers that may have moved uh, some people, but but that would that would be an outlier then if if in fact that's true. Yeah, right? I don't know. I you don't know, know, Charlie. I I don't believe that's moved anybody. Okay. Anybody. I mean, I've talked to now, and again, like, let me clarify this for for people. Sure. I'm not a pollster, right? So right. 
I, and I, I keep really good track of my conversations. I have, a, I'm looking at my spreadsheet right now where I log, you know, the people's names, their, you know, at phone numbers, their jobs. Like, you know, I, I log everybody I talk to and what they said. Hmm. But if, if you ask me like what percentage of people, you know, right. like are, you know, leaning towards Trump, like I, the number that I would give you, you should go to a pollster for that, right? Um, I, I can, these conversations can kind of give qualitative data or qualitative insights that like a pollster, you know, huh. might not get. But I can tell you, I've now talked to uh, almost 150 people in Wisconsin and now in Michigan, um, not total in both states, because um, I'm still working my right. way through Michigan. And not one person has brought up the suckers and losers comment. Not one. Okay. Not one um, when I ask about it, sometimes if I'm talking to a uh, somebody who's supporting Trump who has indicated that they're a veteran, or for example, yesterday, I talked to a woman on the street in Holly, Michigan, who was on her way back from visiting her father's grave, and her father was a World War II veteran. And so I said, well, what do you think of you know the reports that Trump called war dead suckers and losers? She's like, I don't believe it. He didn't say that. Mm-hmm. And that has been the... That has been the overwhelming response from people uh, when I ask them about the suckers and losers comment. Either they don't believe he said it, or they think it was taken out of context, or they sort of don't care because they think that, you know, even if they do believe he said it, they think, oh, he was joking, or the media is twisting it, or, you know, there are all... It is, yeah. It is an impermeable yeah. barrier, isn't it? It's, uh... Yeah, and, and I did the same thing, you know, frankly, the same is true with the Woodward tapes. Not one person has brought up these Woodward tapes. When I ask about them, they're like, "Ah, oh, well, what was he supposed to do? Make us panic?" Like there's a um, there's a mental gymnastics that happens that it's it's a it is a that whatever Trump does, that's the right thing. There's no kind of um, there's no kind of independent uh moral expectation that they're evaluating Trump against. Trump is the Trump is the standard. There's no other standard that they're like, well, does Trump meet the standard? Whatever Trump does is the standard that they that so approve of, are, basically. Are there any undecided persuadable voters out there? It sounds like yes. you're not meeting them. Okay, there are some. Yeah, I I've met a couple. Um, you know, I've certainly met a couple. I think that there are way fewer than we in the media think there are. Um, but again, listen, with, you know, 150 people is not a very large sample size uh, compared to what pollsters do. So, you know, me meeting probably, I've probably met, you know, roughly three or four people who are truly undecided. Um, you know, the thing is that uh, a lot of the one of the things that I, one of the problems that I think the Biden campaign has is that a lot of the people who are truly undecided, they hate Trump, but they really, there's been a lot of poison in the well about Joe Biden too. I think not as much as Hillary Clinton, but there's a lot of like, I don't know about him. You know, he's too old. Is he all there? Um, you know, I, I spoke to a guy um, in a Walmart uh, parking lot in Macomb County the other day, who is a, um, he is sort of a Reagan style Republican. He voted for Trump in 2016, but he, you know, this is, this was the rare guy, the the very rare voter for whom there was a breaking point. He, the the impeachment in Ukraine was the break, 
the, the impeachment thing was the breaking point for him. He thinks he should have been impeached. He thinks Trump, he thinks Trump is unfit for office. Mm. He's like, you know, so I was, I was like, I've never met a voter like that. Wow. So I said, okay, well, you know, what are, what's your plan for, um, for November? And he says, well, I cannot vote for Joe Biden because I just hate Kamala Harris. I hate her, hate her, hate her. And I absolutely cannot. So, so I'm going to vote third party. So I think that there's this, there's this, uh, you know, I think a lot of people assume that hating Trump translates into a vote for Biden. And I think that that's a flawed assumption. I, I well, I agree with you. And, and the, you know, sometimes at the media level, we refer to this as the anti-anti-Trump people, which is yeah. they, they understand how bad Trump is. They will concede the awfulness of Trump, the unfitness of Trump, but they will immediately then pivot to the pivot to the awfulness of the Democrats. And so you're seeing a lot of this, uh, a lot of buzz about this, that the Democratic Party is just too left wing and they will come up with examples, you know, that, by the way, here in Wisconsin. So the the big meme is that, well, you know, Kamala Harris went to uh, to, to, to visit the man who'd been shot seven times in the back um, and she called him a hero. Of course, they don't refer to him as the man shot seven times in the back. He's a man facing third degree sexual assault charges. And Kamala Harris thinks that he is a hero. And that's something that, you know, former Governor Scott Walker is pushing out. And every Republican that I know mm-hmm. knows that meme. So there is that. And if you push back and say, well, Joe Biden himself is, you know, Joe Biden is not Antifa. He is not a socialist. He is a, he's a centrist. Then the defense will be, yes, but he will be this empty vessel, right? Um, he's not up to it. He's senile. Um, he will just simply be a front for the radical left. Uh, and Kamala Harris has now become sort of shorthand for for that. So th- this is a challenge, I do think, for the Biden folks to say, all right, guys, uh, I am not this caricature that the Trump folks are pushing, because that that is the overwhelming theme that I get in Wisconsin is right. that it is really the radical left um, that's there. So I get literature with Bernie Sanders' picture on it and AOC's mm-hmm. picture on it and all of and Elon Omar's picture on it. And at some point, they're going to have to figure out how to say, hey, guys, I'm not them. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the – so this, you know, this gets at a – a, pro- a, a real problem for Democrats and the left, which is that part of this is that, and this I, I get at in my book, part of this is that the structures of these, um, the structures of these social movements like Occupy, like Black Lives Matter, has really changed a lot since the 20th century. So for example, in the civil rights movement, you had Martin Luther King Jr., you had Malcolm X, you had SNCC, you had John Lewis, you had these structures where... Um, you know, leaders, visible, defined, singular leaders of the movement who could say, this is us. We're doing the Birmingham bus boycott. This is our plan. You know, that person breaking a window in the town over, that's not us. You know, we're here. We're talking to the president. We have, you know, we want this bill. We are doing this specific action. Our our tactics include this. We are the movement. Um, in, you know, and this is also, a, I think, a byproduct of social media, you know, because of the internet, and this has been a strength and also in some ways a weakness, because of the internet, these movements are totally decentralized mm. and spontaneous. And so, for example, there's no leader of Occupy. There's no there's no Martin Luther King Jr. of the Occupy movement. And there's also no Martin Luther King Jr. of Black Lives Matter. There's no one person who says, I am the leader. This is what we want. This is what we don't want. Here is, here's what we will accept. Here's what we won't accept. They're, they, 
you know, when I talk to these activists, they say we have a leaderful movement. And that's been great in a lot of ways because it's contributed to the strength. It's, it means that they've been able to, you know, mount these protests immediately in the aftermath of these police killings. You know, it's it it's made this these movements much more nimble, much more widespread. But it also means that it's very, you know, if you have if you have a you know peaceful protest of ten thousand people in New York City, and then you have you know. 10 people in Kenosha uh, breaking windows or burning down buildings or 30 people, you know, doing that. There's no mechanism to say those people aren't with us. We do this. We're the leaders. So I think that that makes it a, a real weakness because it makes it impossible to distinguish sort of who are the outliers, who are the agitators who aren't really part of the movement because there's nobody at the top to say, you're not really with us. So that also then creates that vacuum where you can project whoever you want to be the leader. So that exactly. Black Lives Matter becomes, you know, in the shorthand, Al Sharpton, you know, exactly. um, or it, exactly. be- it, it becomes the most extreme person that you've ever seen on YouTube. And this is also the power of of, of social media is the is the especially on the right, you, you find one outlier, one person, yes. and, and that person becomes immensely more famous than you can imagine. <laughs> because yes, exactly. that becomes the representative. So you, last time we, we, we talked, uh, I, I mentioned a tweet that you had, and I wish I had it in front of me, which I thought was really interesting. Um, because what I want to get to is what people in the media and in politics don't understand about actual voters. There's the yeah. assumption that voters engage in sort of linear thought, you know, that A leads yeah. to B, leads to C, leads to D. Right. Whereas what you found was that A leads to what? Well, I think I put it like, you know, <laughs> it, like A leads to purple, leads to banana, leads to 18. Like, it's just like, you know, oh. it's not, it's not, I, I think here's, here's what, Here's the way I would put this. I think that sometimes in the media, we have this assumption that like, you know, by writing this story, you know, this person, you know, like, like writing this story will change minds in this way, you know, writing a story, you know, writing a story about Trump insulting the war dead will cause veterans to hate Trump. Correct. Writing a story about, you know, Trump, you know, has been accused of sexual assault by dozens of women will cause women to dislike Trump, <laughs> or, you know, right. or, or, or the other side, you know, writing a story about how, uh, you know, Biden's strength in the black community will make black voters like him or, you know, Biden's, you know, and that was a sort of asymmetrical example, mm-hmm. but, but that kind of idea of this, this mm-hmm. information leads to this opinion is broken. Um, and so what actually happens? So actually what happens is, how do we get to the banana? It's again, one of the things that's so challenging about this, Charlie, is that (laughs) it, I I think of it like an unlogic. Yeah. It's not, it is not, there's no way to get to the banana because the actual it's, there's, you know, I, I, I could talk to one person and it would be a leads to purple leads to banana. And then I could talk to their friend and it could be like, you know, A leads to the Beatles, leads to chicken soup. Like, you know, like it's, it, it's, there are people, you know, I talk to some voters who have very established reasons for what they, for why they think what they think. And it's completely, uh, it, you know, it, it tracks logically. And then I talk to other people and not even QAnon people um, who 
for whom like something has short-circuited in the way they're making these decisions and the way they're thinking about this. And uh, it's, it, it's, impo- you know, it, it's something like, you know, somebody will say, uh, well, you know, he, I, I can't even come up with an example yeah. because there's just so many of them. But- no, I, no, listen, I, I just want to, I want to stress that I think this is one of the most important insights into American politics. And it's something that I think people who look at it from 35,000 feet don't really understand that there's a certain base irrationality. Now, that, what, are you saying that people are dumb or they're okay? No, I'm, I'm saying that, that, no. that, that the, the logical process doesn't work the way it works on paper and the way you think it works on paper. It is much more, the nice way of putting it would be idiosyncratic. So, you know, I mean, I, I think this is a very important insight that you have here. And I'm sorry, it raises doubts in my mind. And I'm just, I'm just trying to work through this, the implications of that. As I'm guessing, you're kind of trying to like, what is this? Yeah. Mean? Where, where are we going here? That, that whether it, it raises questions about whether the democratic experiment is, is going well. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, I have to say I've been doing for some reason, I'm like on a, um, like a revolutionary war kick recently. Yeah, <laughs> um, me, me and too, yeah I'm, I'm just been like, sort of, I'm watching this like cheesy show on Netflix called Turn uh-huh. Washington Spies, which if you're into the Revolutionary War, um, is really fun. But um, the thing that um, I keep thinking about as I go, you know, around the country here is that um, you know, one of the things that we learn about the Revolutionary War is that in some ways it was also a war between sort of order and chaos because the Redcoats were like, we've got, you know, five lines of 30 men and like, you know, our cannons are pointed, you know, due north and like, you know, the enemy will never take our mighty fleet. You know? and, very linear. And, yeah. Right, very, very linear, very like, you know, the, the British army was incredibly orderly and that was what had it had um, enabled them to create this entire empire. Right. And the American patriots, the revolutionaries, uh, you know, were a sort of ragtag band of rebels and they attacked them from the side. They attacked them mm-hmm. from in trees. They, you know, hid under hay bales and attacked them that way. And they were impossible to predict. And it was ultimately a battle between order and chaos and chaos won. And I think that that's been one of the things that has been sticking out to me this trip is that I don't think that this election is a is a contest really between Democrats and Republicans. I think it's a contest between order and chaos. And I don't know. uh, One of the challenges is that the side of order is inherently dis um, is, is inherently disadvantaged because chaos is impossible to predict. And uh, the side of order has a much narrower field that they can fight on because they're constrained by rational constraints. And, you know, for example, one thing that keeps coming out in, in, in my one sort of consequence is that I think that Biden is uniquely vulnerable to an October surprise in the way in a way that Trump is not. There is no information that will come out about Trump that will change this election. None. Right. There is, you know, like he could literally shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and there could be a video of it. And a certain core portion of his voters 
um, will not only uh, still vote for him, they'll be more excited to vote for him because they'll think that that video was faked and it was, it was you know, evidence of some plot against him. And that's, I think, one of the things that people don't understand about conspiracy thinking in general is that when you present a fact to challenge a conspiracy theory, for example, if you're talking to someone who thinks that the moon landing was faked and you say, oh, no, but look, you know, here's this picture of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. They say, oh, well, that was faked. That just proves that Life magazine is in on it. And if you say, oh, oh yeah. no, like, I know, I know, <laughs> like, here's a rock from the moon. They'll say, oh, well, you know, that just proves that somebody in a lab made a rock to fake the moon landing. And so, so not falsifiable. Yeah, it's not falsifiable. So I think that basically, you know, tr- I would not, I am, I think that you know, the Biden campaign, you know, there is information and I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying this to predict this, but I do think that, you know, Biden can be hurt by new information that comes out because the people who he's talking to believe information. They believe the news, they believe new facts that are reported. Um, Trump has like a, like a reality shield. He has some kind of force field around some uh, around him uh, around him among some of his supporters not all of them where there is no fact that can come out about him that will dent their opinion of him it will only strengthen it uh no i i think you your view of politics has changed in the last would you say six weeks six months um yeah i mean so i covered the midterms and I came away very optimistic after the midterms. I felt that the midterms, um, you know, really kind of, I thought it was really inspiring that all these kind of ordinary people, many of them ordinary women, many of them young women, kind of like stepped up and got involved in American politics and got their hands dirty and got elected. Like, those are the kinds of stories I love, you know, talking about right. the 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 transformation from ordinary American citizen to elected official. It's like, that is the miracle of American democracy. And you've right? written, you, and you've written a book about this. I mean, and I do want yes. to get to that. I mean, the, the book is for people who want to know Charlotte Alter's book, the ones we've been waiting for, how a new generation of leaders will transform America. So that would be yeah. the optimistic Charlotte Alter. Yes, that is the optimistic Charlotte Alter. And I think I still, you know, and, and listen, the, that book is a, you know, there are some, there's a lot of, for example, there's a lot of Pete Buttigieg in that book, mm-hmm. right? So uh, there are some things that, you know, I wrote this book in 2018 and 2019. So there are some things that aren't, that are, you know, that haven't held up. But actually, most of it has totally held up because the argument of the book is that in the long term, uh, if we're talking a decade or two decades in the future, this generation, you know, this generational divide where younger people are, you know, more concerned about climate change more aware of system of systemic racism, more kind of uh, um, more kind of uh, web literate, you know, they're they're they understand what's real and what's fake online in a way that a lot of middle aged and older people don't like that. I basically think things are going to get a lot better when the people who are young now are in charge. Um, you know, not that they're going to improve everything, but that I think that there will be some things that are uh, improved. Um, but I, but in the short term, I don't know. I don't know how we get out of this information problem we're in. Um, I think that the, I think it, you know, I think the only people who can, who can help fix this are the people who are in charge of these platforms. 
And there's so little regulation of these companies that I don't know how, um, I, I don't know why they would change, they would fundamentally change their algorithm unless they're forced to basically. Yeah. The reward, the reward structure is too overwhelming for them not to do this. No, you, you and I could talk about this for hours because I think what you describe about the, in the near term, this election, the asymmetry where Joe Biden is going to be held to the standards of a normal human being and a normal politician Whereas we've just sort of said, well, yeah, but Trump is Trump. So uh, we can have, you know, 20 outrageous stories that aren't actually going to have any effect, um, whereas uh, Biden is vulnerable. You know, when we're done with this podcast, I'm going to be doing an interview with a British publication. One of the questions they're going to ask is, has anything you have done over the last four years changed any minds? <laughs> That's a scary yeah. question because this goes to the whole heart of all of the effort people have done, particularly on the right, you know, to write books and have think tanks and you know, create policy decisions and principles, when in fact it turns out that the the real beating heart of the right wing in this country is this chaos that you described here. Is that and, yeah. and I, I, that's part of the dynamic. Because right. you, you know But but you know, Charlie, one of the things that I have found, and this is part of my this is part of why I wrote the book that I wrote, um, is that like I said, I I do think that some of these this kind of uh, accountability information is like is you know falling on deaf ears, right? But I think the flip side of that is that people are so focused, so obsessively focused on the presidency, right? And there right. are a million pieces about Trump and Biden every day. And before Biden was the candidate, it was a million pieces about like people are obsessed with who is the president, right? And what I realized is that. Um, you know, one way, for example, that in one uh, one way that information hasn't been polluted, and one sort of information channel that hasn't been polluted is writing about people, you know, good people, decent people who are doing, you know, pa- decent and patriotic things, um, who aren't the president. Maybe they're a state legislator. Maybe they're a state senator. Maybe they're a city councilman. Maybe you know, like giving some of that obsessive attention to some of these you know, letting that kind of trickle down to some of these people that are, that are, that are really emblematic of what's good about American democracy and what isn't broken about American democracy, but they never get any attention because everybody's so focused on Trump. So that's really what I try to do in my book is shine a light because listen, we live in an attention economy, right? And attention actually has a monetary value in some ways in this, in this attention economy that we're living in. And one of the real problems is this asymmetry of all this attention on Trump and not enough attention on, you know, actually some of these really exciting and compelling and uh, life affirming young people who, uh, you know, actually, if, if anyone paid attention to them, uh, could could really change how our democracy is run. I want to end on a positive note because the rest was so dark. So, uh, <laughs> Charlotte, we have to have you back on the podcast because this has sure. been absolutely fascinating. And uh, for those of Charlotte Alter is the national correspondent for Time Magazine, has been doing some amazing uh, grassroots reporting. I strongly recommend it. And her book is The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Charlotte, thanks so much for being so generous with your time today. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. 47 days until Election Day.